Hey everyone, this is Deacon Jim Rohner, but it's not just me today. This episode was so big and so special that Reverend Vanita just had to join me in this conversation. Now, if you're anything like me during the summer of 2020, you were made aware of the Poor People's Campaign through the voice and actions of Reverend William Barber specifically, and you assumed that Poor People's Campaign was maybe an organization or a business, a nonprofit where there was a, a headquarters and employees and you could call in or email, donate, volunteer, whatever. There was a centralized organization that was working for the benefit of the poor. Boy, was I wrong. Instead, the Poor People's Campaign is actually an organization of individual groups of volunteers in every state and every region in the United States that are united in their mission to elevate the poor, to break down the stigma of the poor, and to, as they say, rise to demand that the 140 million poor and low-income people in our nation from every race, creed, color, sexuality, and place are no longer ignored, dismissed, or pushed to the margins of our political and social agenda. Joining us in conversation today are two representatives from the Poor People's Campaign, Aurelis Figueroa and Kelly Smith, who know a great deal about this work, not just because they are longtime volunteers, but also because they themselves know what it's like to be poor in this country. Now, there are three main goals in this conversation today, beginning with one, to destigmatize and humanize poor people in this country, to break down the stigma of what it is to be poor in this country. Number two, to recognize this is a political issue. Just like the words of Christ and the actions of Christ, this is a political issue in this country. We cannot avoid that. And number three, to end on hope and inspiration. We don't want to wallow in sadness about this topic. We instead want to look at the work that they're doing and the mission that they have and the hope that they have to bring and how we can get involved and how we can be inspired as well. As I said before on this podcast, whether you are a first-time listener or a long-time listener, if you have been touched or inspired by this podcast and the work this church is doing, then we invite you to give and to allow our mission to continue. It doesn't matter if it's $5 or $500. Anything you give is going to help further the mission of Forefront Church. Go on online at ForefrontNYC.com backslash give, where you can find more information about setting up a one-time or recurring gift, or you can go on Venmo at FFBK-Gifts. Once again, anything you give is going to further the mission, is going to be greatly appreciated as we progress and move forward in the next 500 years of Christianity. Kelly and Aurelis, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast tonight. Uh, Reverend Vanita is joining me as well because she couldn't pass up this opportunity um, to talk about this really great institution um, and, and organization. And now I'm sure a lot of listeners um, have heard of Poor People's Campaign before, but I'm sure a lot of them also, like me, have only been made aware of, of you as an organization relatively recently. Specifically for me, I, I know it was during 2020, during the Black Lives Matter protests, and especially during the coverage of what was happening with COVID, you know, these two seismic ripples in American culture and society, that's when the name came to, and specifically Reverend Barber was seemingly appearing on every news organization possibly could being interviewed about what was going on. So I want to first kind of start more broadly to educate our listeners a bit as to what Poor People's Campaign is, what you do, and also just kind of both of your um, involvement and stories with it. And so, Kelly, why don't we just start with you um, with whatever you've got to say on those two topics? Sure. Um, and it's something I'm incredibly passionate about. So say stop. You've, you've uh, told us enough <laughs> um, because it is it is definitely um, my passion um, and my life. 
But um, the Poor People's Campaign, you you are certainly not alone for um, immediately thinking of Reverend Barber, um, who is one of the co-founders of the modern Poor People's Campaign. Um, I find that people tend to fall into two buckets. They either know us as the Martin Luther King movement, or they know us as the Reverend Barber movement. And sometimes people know us as both. But um, the Poor People's Campaign, which is actually a movement and not officially an organization, and we can talk more about that later, um, was started back in 1968 by Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, just very briefly, you know, this is at a time when the Voting Rights Act had been passed. Um, there was some, you know, movement around certain rights. And but what Dr. King was seeing was that we needed a shift towards, you know, towards human rights from kind of civil rights to really human rights. Um, and with the um, with the Vietnam War, uh, Dr. King was seeing this this huge shift of money towards the war and the programs that were helping people at home were being done away with. Um, and so he launched the Poor People's Campaign um, and with the idea that, you know, the poor and dispossessed in our country, that we needed to organize this, this revolution, this revolution of values um, against not the people, but the structures that are really, you know, holding our society back. Um, and he famously said there are millions of poor people in this country who have very little or nothing to lose. If they can be helped to take action together, they will do so with a freedom and a power that will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life. So you will hear that new and unsettling force a lot throughout the Poor People's Campaign. Um, as he was starting this, he was murdered. And we really feel it was that bringing together a poor people across historic lines of division um, that was truly seen as a threat in this country, a threat to the ruling class, a threat to the owning class, a threat to the power. Um, the original Poor People's Campaign looked at three evils, um, poverty, racism, and militarism, specifically the, the war economy. And then you fast forward to 19, uh, to 2018, um, and when Reverend Barber of Repairs of the Breach and Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris of the Cairo Center at Union uh, Theological Seminary right here in New York City um, decided to relaunch the campaign, and they recognized that we needed to add to those three original evils um, that King so eloquently spoke of numerous times, actually, that needed to add um, ecological devastation because we know when these things happen, when our you know our global climate is impacted, who is impacted first? It, it's poor, poor communities, and this distorted moral uh, narrative of religious nationalism. And we pretty much just say flat out now, white Christian nationalism. Um, and so it was relaunched in two thousand eighteen. Um, I 
I'll stop there with sort of the history, but the um, what really drew me to the campaign was, you know, we can go back to 2018 and think about what was happening in our country. Um, we were really seeing, you know, the emergence of um, of a sort of the the seeds of fascism, <laughs> the seeds of real uh, things impacting the rights of people. Um, we had a house that needed to be flipped. Um, we had, you know, there, we were seeing children separated at, from their parents at the border. I mean, it was just like an onslaught of issues. And I did work in anti-racism. My career was in um, anti-racism work, but in sort of a corporate level. And I just recognized that I needed to do it in a much more real and impactful way. And nothing really spoke to me the way that the Poor People's Campaign did. Um, it is so easy to focus on an individual issue um, and to get caught up in that. And I applaud the people who were doing incredible work in a particular area. But if we don't understand the intersectionality of them, if we, it, you know, um, as we peel back the layers, we realize you can't look at racism without looking at poverty. You can't look at poverty without looking at racism. You know, you can't look at any of these as individual issues. You really have to see the interconnection of them. And the Poor People's Campaign was really the one place where I saw that being done effectively. And it was really, even though Reverend uh, Barber is um, our, our most famous face and a beautiful voice for the campaign, it was also a place where really the voices of those most impacted are the, are the ones that are being centered in the conversation and who are leading this, this really important movement. So I will stop there. Um, it's probably more than you wanted to hear, but I will stop there. <laughs> No, that, that's uh, great. Thank you for that. That's a wonderful kind of um, laying the groundwork and a, and a rich tapestry of history. So, um, Aurelis, I want to hear from you. How did how did you kind of first get involved or be made aware of, of the Poor People's Campaign? And what got you drawn to it? Yes, thank you for having us. Um, to do that, I first need to tell people that I'm from the Dominican Republic. I am a Black woman from the Dominican Republic. And I grew up in the church. Uh, my father was a pastor. I went to seminary. And actually, I went to, to Brazil in the early 80s. So I really was um, immersed in the, in the liberation theology. And my trip to Brazil, I always counted as my second uh, conversion. <laughs> I converted to the to the poor, you know, the, the preferential, uh, Jesus preferential auction for the poor. And uh, so I was so immersed in, in that when I, things happen in my life and have to come to New York. Actually, I came from Brazil to New York City because my family, things happen, I have to stay here. So, but since I came here, I started organizing and getting involved in movement. I, I That was in 1992. And I remember that I get involved in the, because one of the reasons I went to Brazil was because it was the 500th anniversary of the, the, the centenary, the 500 years of the Columbus. And we wanted yeah. to 
So I, I found a group here and I get engaged in that group. So I have been doing uh, organizing through the church, getting frustrated with churches that wasn't doing nothing. <laughs> I joined the Riverside Church of anything, right? This is because uh, I kept asking people who, where I can go. So I was at Riverside when Reverend Barrett showed up. Mm. So when he spoke, I was like, a, oh my God, finally. <laughs> <laughs> finally, you know, because, you know, people here don't want to talk about poor <laughs> and poverty. And when Reverend Barrett have like, I say, okay, I want to do this. And that's how I get uh, involved, right? Uh, as Kelly said, uh, it was also beautiful to to know, to learn more about the intersectionality and to see that so so vivid and like the the environment, right? We cannot talk about environment, right, without the racism, right? Environmental racism, for example. So that's how that's why I. I stay. <laughs> so we have been since the since the launch in the campaign in 2018. I got excited when I heard you talk about Riverside. I was there that night. Oh, I was wow. there that night. That was the first time I heard Reverend Barber. Uh, that was for the Juneteenth celebration. Um, mm -hmm. Martin Luther King III was there. Uh -huh. yep. um, uh, Reverend Forbes was there and yeah, yeah. as pastor and uh, it was a phenomenal event and I was really taken back by all of the work that this movement was involved with and um, I don't think I had heard about the movement prior to that evening but one of our friends who goes to Riverside who also sings in the choir invited us out to the Juneteenth celebration and from that point on, that's how I found out about the poor people's uh, movement. And um, while, gosh, I wish I would have been following you closely all of this time, I have been following you and um, from afar and admiring the work for sure. Great, great, thank you. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this idea of, of what you mentioned that you, you're not an organization, but you are a movement because you know, people think of a, a or hear a name and they go to a website and they think, well, there's a, there's probably a group of people in an office somewhere that are, you know, uh, coordinating nationwide this kind of thing. And I can donate money to them and I can do X, Y and Z for them. But I am really curious as to as, as to how this is how how you differentiate, basically, or, or kind of um, how this works as as a as a network versus being an organization or, or I should say as a, a movement versus just being an organization. One thing um, that the campaign, our goal, right, is the unity of the poor within the, so um, we, we don't wanna get that if each one is in their own kind of box, right? Just I'm working with immigration, I'm working with people in jail, I'm working for the environment. So since we want the unity of the poor, so we are saying that we are that movement that wanted to unite all those voices. We, wanted, we want to be, if you wish, a platform. We want to have a, a platform where people can come and then we work together, right? If you have, you're working with this issue, so we're going to support what you are doing. And also we are, 
doing this from the bottom up. Mm. Because we have the idea of the coalitions, right? Right, coalition sometimes is like a, a bunch of organization, but usually we're just like a, the CEOs or the directors. And sometimes the people in the in the base didn't know that they were belong to this organization. So we wanted to real um to build this movement from the bottom up. And Kelly have more to say about that. <laughs> no, I mean I think you did a great job. I mean, we are we are a hundred percent like volunteer. So um you know, we are doing this, we are, it's a very intentional model of remaining a volunteer driven model um, so that it is welcoming to everyone so that we don't, you know, have an, a hierarchy um, so that we have some flexibility in how we adapt our work. Um, and, um, and it doesn't mean we're not organized. So I want to be really clear on that, um, that you can be a movement that is very organized, um, but is not, you know, we don't, we're not a 5013C, you know, 3C, we're not, we don't have a board of directors per se, you know, but we have committees and teams of people that are really committed to doing this. Um, when I first joined in June, in um, eight, um, in 2018, I left my job to do this. Um, and now realize I could never go back <laughs> to the corporate world I was in before. And I'm now among the the sort of unemployed and the, and the folks who are struggling, but it also puts me closer to the struggle. Um, and, and, um, but it's, it's really about meeting people where they're at. So we have folks who are working full time and jobs and, you know, really struggling and yet giving up their time to then join this movement because they want better. You know, they want they know that there's a better reality out there. Um, and and so we just we just make that distinction for people, because I think sometimes um Again, it, it just keeps us, most nonprofit organizations and even the really good ones are still very sort of top down. And as Arlie said, we're, we're, we're bottom up. Um, you know, we lift, when we lift from the bottom, everybody rises. And, and so that being a movement allows us to be that way a little bit more. Yeah, maybe um, just because I know people know, maybe to clarify this relationship between Cairo Center and the repairs of the bridge, right? Those are like at the anchor organization. So we, yeah, we need some kind of structure a little bit, but the um, we have a staff that work at Kairos or work at, at repairs of the bridge, but no employed by the, the campaign. And then uh, the Poor People's Campaign is a program of Kairos mm -hmm. and it's a program of repairs of the bridge. So that's give us some support uh, for those big rallies and other other campaigns that we are doing. And where are they based, uh, Cairo and Repairs of the Bridge? Cairo so, is in New York City. Yeah. And Repairs is in North Carolina. And then as a as this network, as this um kind of support structure, what how do you all work together to support, to provide? What you know what I, I want to hear. I want to hear a little bit more about that because, like I said, people think like, "Oh, so there's 
there is a board and then there's there's people who have these jobs and there's people as this but instead you're you're it seems like you're more a nationwide commune which sounds incredibly supportive and very interesting and i want to hear like you know when when people become a part of it when people volunteer or when people even seek out assistance what 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 do they find so we are the poor people's campaign is a nationalized state campaign so it is actually a series of state campaigns um, that have this kind of overall arching sort of national structure. So um, every state, you know, is going to have some similarities and some differences. Our guiding principles are absolutely the same. Our, our idea of centering the voices and leadership of those most impacted are absolutely the, the same. Our, our, strategies of shifting the narrative by shifting the narrator, of building power among the poor and dispossessed, of working to influence uh, um, policy and elections. Those are going to be the same, whether you're in New York or you're in Wisconsin or you're in Florida or wherever you're at. But here, just for example, here in New York, where we're at, we have a statewide coordinating committee, and then our state is divided into nine regions. Um, and I, I know you have folks listening in from all over, and we can help tell them how to get to get connected to their own state campaign. Um, and so I won't spend too long on New York, on New York. But these these nine regions around the state, um, New York City, because we're so big, we're our own region. <laughs> um, and so people can tap into the work and it's both local, state and national. So we'll be working on both local issues, state issues, and then being part in supporting the overall national campaign. I love what you just said, that idea about shifting the narrative, um, because that is certainly something that I, I want to address here that I think needs to be addressed because when a lot of times when audiences hear the word poor or they see the word poor or they see there, there's an image that comes to mind and that image is oftentimes someone who's living on the street who's panhandling for change maybe they're mentally unwell maybe they're addicted to something but they have this very specific stark image and that is certainly um one contingency of it but also there is a, a stigma in this country specifically this idea that if someone is poor it must be something they did they got themselves there and really we have this idea of the american dream and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and this kind of thing that it was something that somebody did that got them to the point of being poor or impoverished and poverty and sort of like there is there is a shame and there is a individualism to it so I want to I wanted to kind of talk about this to kind of um, shift that and there's not a specific question here, but if you could just kind of give your thoughts on that on removing the stigma on shifting the narrative and kind of what does poor look like in this country now and specifically kind of how have systems kind of contributed to that and perpetuated it really. Before that, yes, that's what we said, right? That's what we are against to that, the trying to shift that uh, narrative of, of the poor. And really, we say that poverty is a political choice. And people don't talk about that. What makes us poor are decisions that politicians make. 
right? So we we work um uh in, in for, for we work toward that and also when we say that we want to build the leadership of the poor, is that's why we want to have give them a voice when when they they can tell the stories, right? And then you will you will see we're gonna discover that it's more than that. It's not like a, yeah, there are people I'm working. We we hear people uh and I was working, I have two jobs, but still. But there are so, all, all the things that we, we don't know, like uh, the, mes the measurement of poverty, like is from 50 years ago. <laughs> so, uh, so all, all of that is that we are trying to kind of deconstruct. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that's it. I mean, totally. If, if I can just add on that, you know, um, because this is so central to, to what we believe and who we are, you know, we know that we've been told these myths about poverty and who the poor are. Um, and, you know, we, we sort of break it down into like, like several different things, pathology, you know, there's something wrong with you is why you're poor. You're lazy, you make bad decisions. You have like mental illness, you know, there's something wrong with you that makes you poor. Um, there's like the, the sort of, idea of dumb luck oh if I you know if they just hadn't lost their job um you know if they just hadn't you know their house just hadn't burned down you know they're you know whatever this caused them to go into poverty there's this idea that a lot of faith communities say that it's biblical that there is actual biblical reasons that you know the poor will always be with us like like it's just preordained that there is poverty um I go to Middle Collegiate Church in, in the East Village and, and in a deacon like you, Jim. And, and you know, um, thankfully, I'm part of a faith community that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't support that. Um, but there's a lot of faith communities that still do. And what we know is what, you know, or at least just said, it's really policy. It is really policy and politics that have repeatedly um you know, compromised on the backs of poor people that we're always told to wait. We're always told, wait till the next election, wait till we have a bigger majority. You know, oh, you're asking for too much. Oh, you know, we're told this myth of scarcity when we know that there is abundancy in this country. And I think it's also really helpful because this is something that I didn't, I mean, I've just continued to learn, but there are 140 million poor and low wealth people in this country, 140 million. That's 43% of us um, that are poor or one $400 emergency away from food insecurity, from housing insecurity, from you know one, one laptop breaking, one car repair, one, you know, whatever. If that is true, then we're either the worst country in the nation, the country of the laziest people, or there are policies in place that are keeping people poor because it is 43% of us, 140 million people. And that's actually probably a low number now. We know at least 8, eight million people went into poverty during COVID. So, um, but if, if 
when we look at those numbers, then it is not, you know, it is not the person that's sleeping in the subway. It is not the person that you're, you know, stepping over to get to your coffee shop. It's, there are, you know, millions of us that are being impacted. And the systemic racism, right? Uh, the interconnection and something that we did, we do and for people's campaign is the political education. So to know um, the, the history, right? That's why when people, when black people were getting kind of after, after the, the slavery and the first reconstruction, you know, people were like a, kind of going out of poverty and what happened, right? How they cut all those um, and pass those laws that then send us back. So that is so key to us to to study the the history, and that is why we are now fighting for a third reconstruction uh, in 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 the United States. There, there are so many places that I want to go, but I'm going to, I'm going to narrow my, my next question to more of a church-based and, and theologically-based one, because we can, we can talk a lot about, you know, th this idea that you said of, of um, a lot of things being built on, on the backs of the poor and how um, for a, for a government um, administration, how, um, you know how they they want to focus elsewhere but in theory the church should be on the forefront pardon the pun of standing up for these people of being allies of defending it i mean jesus speaks more about care for the poor than he does any other topic you know what you have done to, for the least of these you have done to me and yet it is still especially in mainstream evangelical churches a topic that is largely avoided or kind of um danced around to the point of like, let's, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to treat the symptoms. We're not going to treat the cause. We're going to serve in a soup kitchen once a month. And then, Hey, we've done our things. We're, we're all getting into heaven. Uh, I, I'm wondering if, and this is, this could be all for th all three of you, even Vanita as well as, as, you know, uh, coming from the ministry. Wh why is that? Why do churches want to avoid this so much? What, what is it that like, you know, because you can at least, you know, say with governments, well, like, well, there's no money in it for them, or they're just spending money on other people, which like, oh, God forbid we do that. But a church and a church organization, why is this a topic that is so viciously avoided and, and just kind of like swept under the rug? No, I just want to <laughs> I, I say that the church having a, um, complicit, complicit, right? And that's why we needed the liberation theology, right? That's why having movement within the church, having um, trying to put that uh, out. The church having too spiritualized and that telling, telling us that we're going to get our reward after we die and so that have been and that i come from the uh, latin american country and that has been the the narrative right and we have all kind of movement that uh contribute to that within within the church and when movement within the church starts talking then then uh, some some things um start happening, but um, 
And that is why I made the connection with the, the liberation theology. And here, for example, the um, black theology, women's theology. So when all those women within the church start um, coming out and some churches and start assuming those movements is that we, we see some changes. But here in the United States, uh, we have then the white nationalism and the Christian nationalism that when I, I confess when I came here, I didn't I didn't understand why kind of evangelical was a bad word. <laughs> because my my church in Dominican Republic was Iglesia Evangelica Dominicana. I was like, oh they don't want so I have to dig um uh, to to find out why. And in the Dominican Republic, in Latin America, all those programs that we have, like a Club 700, they have all of that translated to Spanish. And so it's like a this perpetuation of this whole religion also that is happening. Yeah, I feel, I agree totally with Arellis. Um, and I feel like many churches have become very comfortable uh, in, in the pews. And um, oftentimes it's easier to blame the victim um, and um, detach oneself from the reality of what is actually going on outside of the four walls. Uh, sometimes people feel like they don't want to get their hands dirty. Um, they can they can look barely, but you know they certainly don't want to touch and they don't want to get too close um, because oftentimes there's this notion that you know. It doesn't have anything to do with them. Um, the focus, as Kelly was talking about earlier, is on the person and you know what they have actually done to put themselves in that position, um, rather than the you know political choices that you all talked about earlier. So I just feel like yeah, there's just a level of comfort and safety in the pews, and um, and it's hard for people to get beyond that when they're not understanding the systemic issues that. Are at play. And, and I will just add that I, you know, I think it's, it's complicated to look at this, like it takes a little work, <laughs> you know, and I don't, I don't mean to say that condescendingly, or in a an air of superiority at all, is that, that we are in the movement, and we have this like superior, you know, like sort of, um, understanding of these things but I mean it's you know first of all we want churches meeting people's needs so you know I I, I I'm always hesitant to be like um we have this sort of love little less than love relationship <laughs> with like you know like feeding programs and things like that because you need you need to serve people's needs you know Jesus fed people like <laughs> you can't organize them until you feed them but what we want to see is that we're taking things a next step and that we're moving from just this direct service to a really mutual aid model where you are organizing with these people with folks who have a very powerful voice we all have very powerful voices around that but that takes time that takes sitting and talking to people 
and listening to them and learning their stories. That takes time sort of thinking about what are the policies that I benefit from that might be hurting someone else. You know, I think that we have a lot of fear in this country um, as people that somehow if others gain, we lose. So, you know, if if we get health care for all, you know, it's a nice idea, but it probably means I'm going to have, you know, worse health care than I have now. Or, you know, it's a and healthcare is a very frightening thing <laughs> for people. It's terrifying, terrifying for me right now as I struggle um, to get what I need from my healthcare provider, you know. So there's a sense of like, what will I lose? if other people gain. Um, and, and to your point, Vanita, there's this, there's this detachment, you know, if I, if I get to know them, then I may have to recognize that I'm actually really closer to that, that my family's really closer to that situation, then maybe I want to admit that, you know, I'm working 70 hours a week to try to keep myself from being there. Um, but, you shouldn't, people shouldn't have to do that. And so, I, you know, I just think there's like a lot of, you know, our, our churches are filled with people and people have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of concern and, uh, and we are hit with a lot of things and it takes, it takes work to learn these things. But, you know, we feel in the movement that, you know, there's a lot of people, first of all, there's a lot of people in the movement who come with no faith. Like, we don't want anyone to feel like just because we're we're sort of spearheaded by these two pastors, you know, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris and, and um, Bishop Barber, we are, we are, there's everybody in the movement. There's people who are there because of their faith and, and, and people who have no practicing religion or, or no, you know, I don't want to say no belief, of course they have beliefs, but no, you know, no religious um, uh, belief. But then there's also some of us who are there because of our faith, because we're like, you know, this doesn't ring. What we're hearing doesn't ring with what we actually hear Jesus say and doing and talking about and we know that um you know just like there's a lot of liberation that kept was kept from enslaved people during you know slavery there was a lot of liberation scriptures that were removed from the bible that in the slave bibles that were you know to keep people from rebelling i think we have actually been sold a version of the bible that has really diminished the revolutionary jesus you know for those who are are of the christian faith and i think it's kind of intentional to sort of keep us docile a little bit mm -hmm. so intentional there was an article that said that there is nothing christian about white Christian, <laughs> it is it is it is a political movement. It is it's also a political movement having used, and we are seeing the consequences. Right, we are seeing it playing out right now. Go to June June um January six. Mm -hmm. You will see all the the religious images that that they have. It is 
that was unbelievable that people can think that that represent Christianity. I, I remember in college hearing um, hearing from a commune in, in Philadelphia that um, I don't know if they originated the line, but they certainly perpetuated of uh, the only problem with Christianity is all the Christians, um, which just seems to ring more true the older I get, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, and I mean, we're even we're seeing stuff now where the narrative is trying to shift again. We're like, well, slavery wasn't so bad. There were benefits that came out of it or, um, or, or, you know, even the idea of like, well, we're shifting away from Jesus. Like Jesus, that one was too radical and too liberal. This is the Jesus we prefer instead. And Kelly, in setting up this conversation, you and I were chatting and, and, and you, you mentioned that Jesus has that line in the Bible, like the poor will always be with you, which some people interpret as like, well, there's nothing we can do about it. But in the context, like, well, no, if you keep ignoring the year of Jubilee, this is what's going to keep happening. <laughs> you know, that every seven years, if you don't forgive everyone's debt, debt is going to perpetuate. Um, and now certainly, you know, we can we can point to gains here and there politically, socially. The year of Jubilee is certainly not coming back at anytime soon, as far as I'm aware. But I, I want to also speak to maybe some gains some wins some things that you both have seen since you've been involved in poor people's campaign that like yes things maybe are starting to shift there have been changes coming through there are certainly some younger and more exciting kind of politicians who are coming up who are kind of speaking things and it seems like maybe things are shifting a little bit have you seen that to be the case as well or am i just being kind of too optimistic when Kelly said that there are 140 million poor people, I think we are, I have, I have heard that in the news, people quoting that, that number, because they used to say like a 40,000, 40 million, uh, and no one, 140 million. Um, and I think that people also, in the movement, the idea of the intersectionality, uh, I'm, I'm saying that that shift also now people be more um, intentional about uh, looking and seeing the the intersectionality of our of our work. Yeah, uh, totally. What Arlise just said that I think we heard. Biden used 140 million not long after our Congress that he was invited to and actually attended um, briefly in, in 2019. Um, and, and we then heard not too long after that, the actual 140 million number used. And I think what we say about that is um, you can't, if you if we can't deal with facts, we know how that important that is <laughs> these days. Facts in our news and facts in our politics is a huge topic. Um, but if we can't, you know, if we can't deal with the real numbers, then it's hard to then deal with the real problem. You know, um, Dr. King said the you know the prescription for the cure lies in the accurate diagnosis of the disease. Well, if you're not accurately diagnosing the disease, if you're not looking at how you know prolific poverty is in our country, um, so yes, I, I'm totally with our release. And so I think people sometimes hear that and they think, well, that seems like a small thing. But when you have never heard that number said by anyone other than like 
you know, and this is, these are numbers that like Columbia University worked with us on, you know, the, um, I don't want to get this wrong. I think of the Institute for Policy Studies, like there's, you know, there were lots of way smarter people than, you know, <laughs> than me who like studied this stuff and, and said, this is a, an, a number. Um, we, I have for the first time heard people call for um, an updating of the poverty measure. Um, again, I knew nothing about this. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how the poverty measure was used. I didn't understand its relationship to how funds are allocated. But again, it goes to this, like, if you are not accurately um, considering how many people there are that are impacted by poverty, then you can't fully address it. Um, so I think those are, you know, those are small things, um, but but they're actually big. <laughs> they they actually have a really big ripple effect. Um, and and I think you know again to what um, Arlie said, I think like you know we're seeing we're seeing people get frustrated with hearing the same old, same old, same old. Um, I think we're seeing more recognition that it's not a strictly red-blue issue, that you don't just vote in a party and, like, all these problems go away, <laughs> because no one's done it. Like, it's not happened, you know. So I think that more people are beginning to recognize that... Um, that it takes more than that. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're, we're clearly encouraged by the number of people that continue to join the, the poor people's campaign. So um, that, you know, that gives me hope. And just, just to put the word poor out there. Yes. <laughs> it's like, that was numb. People don't want it. People, maybe they will say uh, working class. But you never hear about poor. Now, even if just to mention our name, at least they need to say poor people. <laughs> well, and, right. and unfortunately, our governor in her her last state of the state never used the word poor or poverty once. We have forty five percent poverty rate in New York State. Um, we have the highest number of billionaires and one of the highest poverty rates. Um, and she never said the word poor or or poverty. Like to to Elise's point, she said, you know, middle class, working class, and and we just say flat out. Um, we were in a meeting with with Senate uh, Majority Leader um, Schumer and and House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, and um, met with the tri-chairs of the New York State Poor People's Campaign. And we said to them, we are not ashamed. <laughs> you know, we are not ashamed of being poor. Say it. Say the words. And then put your own. And then you have to, that's a step towards addressing, of getting closer to addressing it. Great. Thank you so much for that. And so I don't want to take too much uh, more of, of both of your time. Um, but I, I did just kind of want to always end on action involvement. There are people who are listening to this. Maybe they're encouraged. Maybe they're just kind of enraged at the state of things. Um, but as an individual or even as an organization, um, be it a church, be it a, a, a job, whatever, what can people 
do. And and like I said, that could be even something as simple as a person that comes on poor people's campaign website, or even just as a change of an attitude or a change in behavior as an individual or as an organization. What can people do to join in this movement? You can find us, right? You can look for people's campaign, a national call for a moral revival. No matter what state you are, look for this state and put your name. When you put your zip code, you're going to get um, to that specific region in New York and other, other, other state. Yeah, you so you can um just by signing up so with the poor people's campaign, you're automatically put in. If you are like me and you've that feels too disconnected or you wanna like um you can actually email your state campaign. Every state campaign has the same format for their email address. So like ours is New York at poorpeoplescampaign.org. If you live in New Jersey, it's New Jersey at poorpeoplescampaign.org, you know, the same thing. Um, and, you know, again, different, be, be a little patient with us because uh, these are all volunteer driven um, Oregon, you know, states. And we're really lucky in New York because we have a pretty robust campaign here. But some states are in, in, you know, different stages of developing. I always have to kind of remind myself, we really have only been doing this since 2018. And it's pretty amazing that we're in like 40 states across the country and, you know, in all these places. Um, you know, we, we partner with, with other movements. So just to give you an example in New York State, we're working with the nonviolent Medicaid Army, and we have a week of action coming up in September. Um, there will be uh, an action here in New York City. There's going to be an action in upstate New York, um, in Elmira. And that is actually something that other states are doing as well, because it's it's part of sort of a national thing. Um, so that's a great way to like to kind of plug in. Um, you know, in New York, we would love to hear from y'all. So like, we would love, you know, we want to work with Forefront Church and, and get you more involved. Churches are such great, faith communities are great opportunities for this because you have a cross section of folks. You have, you know, um, there's just, there's so much education that can be done. There's so much that we can do and help you with that builds on the stuff that you're already doing. Um, or Lisa and I both work in faith organizing, so we get pretty excited um, <laughs> when we talk about this stuff. So there's lots of ways to get involved. And I, I will say this, um, like, go to, do some reading, like, like, be a little, like, curious um, and, and do some reading. There's some great things on our website um, if you put in, NYSPPC, we relate, we released, um, and I meant to send you all this, we released a people state of the state, um, which is all breaks down all sorts of data on New York state, and also shares the stories of actual individual people. Um, there's a video that has like a whole bunch of stories. Um, the national website is 
the National Poor People's Campaign has tons of resources and interesting articles. And I think sometimes people are a little disappointed because they're like, tell me where to show up. You know, tell me, tell me when I'm going to get arrested. <laughs> like, tell me what we're going to, what street we're going to block. And, and, you know, we do those things. Um, I've been arrested a few times. The relatives been but those are like just a couple tools in the toolbox like what we spend a lot of time doing is political education and educating our people and learning um because you know um we got to turn uh, i think it's general baker said we got to turn fighters into thinkers and thinkers into fighters and so you know we're we're about really understanding this too and that's something that anybody can do they can start reading up reading up about their own community um and and that's really really invaluable